grace and peace, and welcome to another episode of Your Week with St. Luke's. This week, we're continuing in our series, Dysfunctional Relationships, where the DYS and dysfunctional is in parentheses, uh, because we want to look at relationships that are in the scripture that are somewhat dysfunctional and how we can learn from them uh, and become more more functional in our relationships. Uh, And this week, we're looking at uh, the two figures of Isaac and Rebecca, or Rebecca, uh, husband and wife, and how they communicate dysfunctionally and, and even some functional ways. And we'll be looking at it's in Genesis chapter 24 and then in 27. Uh, and this week, we're excited to have the Reverend Dr. E.B. Arnold uh, from Emory University's Candler School of Theology to, to lead us in this lecture as we all seek to learn from uh, the text dysfunction to how we can be more faithful and function. Hello, friends, and thank you for joining us once again as we continue our study of the dysfunctional relationships in Genesis. Now, please remember that as we spelt that, the dis in dysfunctional is in parenthesis, which means in all of these relationships that we look into and we've looked at uh, Cain and Abel, we've looked at Abraham and Lot, and today we'll be looking at Rebecca and Isaac, there's usually something in a relationship that is dysfunctional, but there's also things in the relationship that actually do make it function, that make it continue. And so when we're looking at these uh, dynamics and situations and relationships and characters, I think it's important to remember that we're not so much looking at whether it's good or bad, but really looking at what it is. And there is no better place to actually find this kind of um, idea than in the story of Rebecca and Isaac. They get together in Genesis chapter 24. And what's very interesting is before their actual wedding takes place uh, and Rebecca's family is discussing the possibility of her uh, uh, going to be Isaac's bride, they say this in chapter 24, verse 50. This thing is from the Lord. Therefore, we cannot speak anything about it, good or bad. I find this to be very interesting. So much of our current theology about God is that God is good and that anything from God is good. And anything that's bad seems to be outside of the realm of God's working. And yet there's this notion in the text, in this ancient culture, that that's not necessarily true. That when something is from the Lord, it can contain both good and bad. And therefore, we can't make a judgment about its goodness or its badness, but rather simply to contemplate it for what it is, what can be learned from it, and whether it is good at the time or bad, whether it's a mixture of both, it simply must be accepted simply because it's from the Lord. I think this is also a very helpful way to look at families and relationship dynamics. Even healthy families have some level or aspects of dysfunction, things that just break down. And Even usually, the most dysfunctional families have something that's working or something that unites them or keeps them together. 
And so I find that this particular way of looking at it is really helpful when we look at these biblical characters, that rather than making a judgment about who's good or bad or right or wrong, what we're doing is we're looking at what is and what maybe is working for them in their context, in their relationship, in their family. And how can we identify where the problematic places are and what can we learn from that? So I invite you today to join me as we look into the story of Rebecca and her husband, Isaac. Now notice I did not say Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, because I think as you get to know these characters, you will notice that Rebecca is very much in the driver's seat of this relationship in many different ways. Now, although they get together in Genesis 24, I think it's really important that we look at who they are individually, and particularly for Isaac, all that has transpired before we get to the event of their marriage. Now, you will notice in Genesis chapter 24 that Isaac is nearly completely excluded from the event of his marriage altogether. Uh, what I mean by that is all, besides consummating the marriage with Rebecca when she arrives, the entire event is planned by his father, his father's servant, and Rebecca and her family. And Isaac is just left out altogether. His father, Abraham, was concerned and didn't want to send Isaac back and was afraid he would stay and therefore sort of uh, compromise the covenant made by Abraham that if he would go away from his birthplace, go away from his family, that God would give him this land and fulfill all of these promises. So it was very important for Abraham to keep Isaac from going back himself. Yet that's where Abraham wants Isaac's bride to be from. So this entire conversation takes place between Abraham and his servant. Isaac is nowhere to be found in any of these conversations. Then this servant goes on and encounters Rebecca. And she is the one that really makes the rest of these plans. We don't hear from Isaac until the very end when Rebecca has said yes, has packed up her trousseau and gone and presented herself as Isaac's wife. So therefore, Isaac is incredibly passive, even in the event of his own marriage. He's very sheltered by his father. In addition to that, in the chapter just prior to this marriage chapter, we find that Isaac is grieving the death of his mother, Sarah, that he is in a place of being bereft. And the chapter before that, Genesis chapter 22, known as the Akeda, is the attempted sacrifice of Isaac by his father, Abraham we might be able to say that that might have been a little scarring. But regardless, even if it wasn't, in that particular story as well, Isaac is still passive. Isaac does not volunteer himself for this. Isaac does not willingly give his permission. He is grieved of his mother, Sarah. He has been left by her as she has died. And now we see he's also sheltered by his father and his father's servant, that he doesn't even have his own action that he initiates in any way. So that's what we know about Isaac when we come to this marriage, that he tends to be very passive. And in all these stories, things are acted on him rather than him being the agent. 
All right, so now who is Rebecca? Well, you will find she is the polar opposite of Isaac. <laughs> While Isaac is the one who is has people acting on his behalf that he himself has not even designated, Rebecca is the agent in the story. Abraham's servant has this uh, prayer that he offers to God to help him find the right woman. And of course, it involves a woman who will actively volunteer to provide for others' needs, that she would come and water the camels, that she would give him a drink, that she would offer him a place to stay. All of these things demonstrate her providing hospitality, which also means her extending herself. So while on the one hand we have Isaac, who's very passive, and his needs are provided for by all of the people around him, his father, his father's servant, his eventual wife, Rebecca is the one providing, the one giving, the one orchestrating. Now what I find is also very interesting is that as Rebecca says yes to this invitation to become Isaac's wife, her family wants her to stay a little bit longer, and she is the one who of her own will says, no, I'm going to leave now with the servant. This is what I'm going to do. And she packs up all of her things, her servants, all of her gifts for her husband's family and takes herself uh, with the servant and with the servant's other uh, escorts. Now, so I find this really interesting. As she leaves, her brothers offer her a blessing. And it's really uh, beautiful and interesting because we don't see too many of these. Um, a blessing on a sister for her offspring, very specifically, not for her husband's offspring or for her and her husband's offspring, but for her offspring to be um, many and to be wealthy and to be fortunate. Uh, and so it's almost as if even Rebecca's whole family acknowledges she's the one in the driver's seat. She's the one on the lead camel here. Okay. And that, that is kind of her natural role. She has this ability to orchestrate things and to be decisive and incredibly determined. And we see that her family is not sending her, but they were asking her, what is it that you want to do? Are you willing to do this? And then they're the ones blessing her on her way. So we see her being a very different type of participant in her family of origin. Then we see Isaac. So what happens when we come together in the marriage. Well, that's what's very interesting is that in all of these things, Rebecca is incredibly bold. And then she gets to her new husband. And as soon as she sees him far off in the distance at the end of 24, she covers herself with a veil. And in the ancient world, a veiled woman was a virtuous woman. Like this was a, a sort of symbol of virtue, of modesty, of humility which is very interesting since we've seen her being so bold and determined and decisive. And now it's almost a symbol of passivity, right? And she goes and presents herself to her new husband. And we're told that he loves Rebecca very dearly and that her presence was a blessing to him and helped comfort him in the loss of his mother. We also find out that in the next chapter, Abraham will die. And so Rebecca is this hinge character that helps Isaac to deal with the death of his parents um, on either side of their marriage. Now, what I find to be uh, interesting and that we've talked about is that there's always something going right. And then 
there's always something that goes a little off the rails, which is why this is about dis and functional characters. So we see something in one of the first episodes of their new marriage. And I find this absolutely fascinating. Rebecca is barren. Now, this should start our ears tingling because we know this story. In fact, this was the birth story of Isaac as well. His mother, Sarah, was barren for many, many decades and late, late, late in life finally had Isaac, the promised child, right? So we know that when a woman is barren and there is a covenant and a promise given to the family, something really miraculous is going to happen. So we're already prepared for it. But what we find is that it says in Genesis chapter 25 that Isaac prays for his wife, prays to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Now, Sarah was barren and Abraham, we have no explicit mention of him praying for his wife. And then Isaac's son, Jacob, would have a wife who was also barren. Rachel, and we have no mention that he prays for her. This is the one and only of the patriarchs that prays for his wife. I think that's something going well. I think we're seeing Isaac's tender side, his compassionate side, that although he's very sheltered, he understands what it means to be bereft and at a loss and extends this to his wife in the form of prayer. And it says that God grants his request. Huh. Now, on the other hand, Rebecca, once she does conceive, she is conceiving twins who are at war in her womb and it is just nonstop. And she is so frustrated and so under so much strain and stress in her physical body that she also goes to the Lord, but it says she complains to the Lord. So just like Isaac addresses God completely directly, so does Rebecca, but even more so, she complains to the Lord and says, if this is the way it's going to be, what the heck? And God reveals to her and her alone the destiny of her two sons that Jacob is destined to be the one that receives the covenant promise and is to be the the higher of the two, and that although Esau is the firstborn, he will not be sort of the figurehead, the leader of the family going forward in generations. I find this interesting. Isaac prays for his wife, and God says yes, and Rebekah conceives. Rebekah goes to the Lord and complains, and God not only uh, responds, but reveals to her specific information. Once again, Rebecca is now in the driver's seat. She's the one with the knowledge. She's the one with the ability to discern where we need to go forward. And of course, it says that Isaac and Rebecca each favored one of their twins. Now, I find this interesting because I think this shows us even more about Isaac. That although he has this compassion for his wife and he prays for her, it says he loved Esau because Esau was a hunter and would bring him really good food that he liked. Notice how his love for Esau is tied to Isaac's need to have someone provide for his needs. 
just like the pattern that we've seen in Isaac's life of being the passive one. He loves Esau because he can depend on him. What I find interesting is that the text says, and Rebekah loved Jacob. And it has no why. It doesn't say she loved Jacob because the Lord had told her he would be the favored one. It doesn't say she loved Jacob because he stayed close to her in the tents. It just said, but she loved him. Again, I find that the way that this is structured sort of helps us see uh, Rebecca likes to be needed. And Isaac likes to depend on someone else for his needs. And again, we're not saying one of them is good and one of them is bad because we can see why these could be problematic in either way. Why Rebecca might end up becoming somewhat of an enabler (laughs) to her scheming younger son and why Isaac's love for Esau may be tied to some conditions of Esau doing and being what it is that Isaac needs and what it is that Isaac prefers. Now, let's look at the next two chapters and see what happens when both Isaac and Rebecca practice a little deception. Now, we have one instance in Genesis chapter 26 where Isaac lies about Rebecca. They're traveling and in the land where they are, he tells the men of the, the particular area that Rebecca is his sister. Because he says she's so very beautiful and attractive, these men will kill me so that they can take her. So he just says she's my sister. But Isaac wasn't exactly real smooth about this because somebody just happens to look out the window and sees him making out with her. And then it was like, what the heck? So again, Isaac doesn't really belong in the driver's seat so much. But what we also notice about this deception that he practices is that it's driven by fear. It's driven by self-preservation. He doesn't want to be killed or harmed. And so his lie is in order to remain this passive person, to simply preserve self, to not extend himself. On the other hand, Rebecca practices two deceptions in these chapters. The first one is that she orchestrates a deception to undermine her older son Esau's blessing. Now, remember that Isaac prefers Esau. And Esau has sort of the upper hand in the ancient world, being the the firstborn of the twins. And so he is the oldest, and to him go all of the blessings and property and holdings of the father. And yet, Rebecca understands. She has this knowledge that God has determined that it will be Jacob and not Esau that will be the figurehead of the family. And so she understands or believes that Jacob should be the one to get it. And so she orchestrates this elaborate ruse to get Isaac to unknowingly give Esau's blessing to Jacob. Now, what I find really fascinating is once again, Rebecca, when it comes to her husband, becomes very um, 
passive, not passive because she's still working to do what it is she's determined to do, but she does not have that bold and direct determination that she had with her own family of origin, that she even had with God, and that she has with her son Jacob. She has no problem very directly, very clearly telling Jacob exactly what's going to happen, exactly how this is all going to go down. But when it comes to her husband, she veils herself. Once again, this time metaphorically veiling herself rather than just directly confronting her husband and saying, I think you should bless Jacob instead. She decides that she's not going to upset the proper order of the husband, the father being the one to do these things. But that is nonetheless going to be her determining where that blessing lands. And so, of course, the story goes that she has Jacob dress up in Esau's clothes because Isaac is very blind. She makes the food that passes his game. And therefore, before Esau can get back from the hunt, Jacob has already absconded with the blessing. Now, that's not the only deception Rebecca practices. In Genesis 27, she hears that Esau is so angry about all this that he's planning to kill Jacob as soon as Isaac is dead. And so in order to protect her sons, she decides to complain to her husband that she doesn't want Jacob to marry women from the the surrounding area like Esau has done because his wives are driving her crazy. And so in order to get Jacob to go away with his father's blessing, she has to tell Isaac that she wants him to leave because she wants him to go get married. Now, the rest of us know she's trying to get him away from his older brother. Now, what I find very interesting about this particular story is that like Isaac, Rebecca does engage in deception. He lied about Rebecca as his sister to preserve himself. However, Rebecca is not deceiving her husband in order to protect herself, but rather to produce the outcome that she believes is right, even at a loss to herself. So she's incredibly determined. And she is also, what I find really fascinating, not just on Jacob's side. In chapter 27, verse 45, she's talking to Jacob about why she wants him to go. And she says, I don't want to lose both of you. And what that means is that she's afraid that if Esau indeed kills Jacob, then she will have lost both her sons. Her older son would be a murderer, would be, um, if not also in turn, um, you know, killed and get capital punishment or driven out and be an outcast, or she wouldn't have a relationship with him anymore. Her rationale is that she's trying to preserve both of her sons. This is her way of trying to somehow keep her family intact, even if it means dividing everyone up and sending them on their own different ways. Now, once again, I find it really interesting that the places where the dysfunction really comes up are the places where Rebecca withholds who she really is. Think about it. She veils herself in front of him, signaling, I'm virtuous. I know my place. 
when he passes her off as his sister, she does not interfere in his deception. She does not state the truth. And she deceives instead of confronts him regarding the blessing and Esau's threat of violence. So what's, I think, fascinating to me is that the dysfunction is that she's not embracing who she is when she is in relationship with her husband. She is a strong and determined woman who has knowledge and a connection with God that gives her the ability to lead. And yet, because she will not formally take that place, she instead leads the family through these underhanded and deceiving ways, which arguably uh, cause real rifts and problems. Another thing I think you'll notice is that Rebecca and Isaac are operating within their family patterns. Now, remember, in Genesis 24, when we meet Rebecca, we also meet her brother Laban. And as we will find in Genesis 29, when Jacob spends a little bit more time with Laban, Laban is a schemer. And he also pulls the old switcheroo and has uh, Jacob marry Leo when he's supposed to marry Rachel in order to make sure that both of his daughters get married and stay in the family. And not only that, not only is that Rebecca's family of origin, but we'll see this family trait also passed down to Joseph and his brothers. Remember that um, two of Jacob's sons would uh, scheme and cheat uh, the, the man who wanted to marry their sister because he had raped her. And then we would also see them claim that their brother Joseph had been uh, devoured by wild animals and show his father Joseph's coat covered in blood. This uh, switching, concealing identities, schemes, and deceptions is a family pattern. And so Rebecca is, in some sense, uh, demonstrating the pattern that she has grown up with and also passing it down to what would be her grandchildren. Rebecca also is very much like Abraham. And we forget that they are also related, that that's the reason Abraham's sending uh, for a bride from his area is that Rebecca and Isaac are in the same family. So like Abraham, Rebecca would also venture to an unknown place at the prompting of God. Remember, this thing is from the Lord. This event of this man uh, servant traveling and having this elaborate setup of, all right, if the woman does this and this and this, then I'll know that this is the woman that the Lord has for my master's son. And so she takes this on faith that this is meant to be. And she gets on her camel and goes far away to a place she has never been because God has prompted it. So while on the one hand, she is definitely operating within the family pattern of scheme and deception, she's also operating in the family pattern of trust and courage and adventure. And just like the other family traits, not only is she uh, embodying what she has been endowed with, but she'll also pass this down. The entire family of Jacob in Genesis 46 would travel to Egypt and reside there for 
quite a long time, willing to go somewhere new, willing to do something completely uh, undone before. Now, we also see Isaac in the same vein. He's also operating in the same family patterns. If that whole deception of saying that your wife is your sister so that the men of the land don't harm you sounds familiar, that's because it is. He saw his own father, Abraham, enact the same deception back in Genesis 26. And Isaac, just like his father, in Genesis 28, would send his son Jacob to get a wife from Haran, just as his father did. Just like Abraham sent uh, for a bride from there for his son, so he will send Jacob there to get a wife from there as well. Now, Isaac seems to think that he's doing this of his own volition, but really what's happened, we know, is that Rebecca has sort of padded this story to make Isaac want to send Jacob away, not knowing the real reason is to save his and Esau's life. So I think that we have enough evidence here to see that families are indeed from the Lord, And we can't say anything good or bad. Or maybe we should say we can't say anything only good or only bad. Families are a mixed bag. And what we can do is we can look at where is the function? Where is the good? The good is in a really strong and dynamic leader. The good is in a really tender-hearted family member willing to pray on others' behalf willing to be comforted. And we can also look at the dysfunction and say, what's not working here? It's not working when someone does not step into what their natural role is and does not trust that their partner will understand and accept. And so my hope for us is that we will use this same lens as we look at our own relationships. What is working? Praise God. This thing is from the Lord. What's not working? Well, if it's not working and we're learning, then it means that we're still moving forward. We keep ourselves open that if it's from the Lord, um, it's always going to have things that are hard and things that are easier, things that are good and things that are bad. But the longer that we remain open to the Lord and open to one another, we allow those places of dysfunction to remain malleable and flexible and willing to grow and learn. Thank you so much for being here with me and come back next time when we talk about Esau and his brother Jacob.